0: At various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. When there are no choices left, people resist. Resistance brings. Revolution. And sometimes a revolution brings about democracy. This is how I introduce the three part episode arc I call Resistance, Revolution, Democracy. I hope you have enjoyed the conversations I had with Erica Chenoweth, George Lawson, and Jonathan Pinkney. My intention was to introduce the idea of civil resistance, then recognize the limitations through a broader examination of revolutions. And finally, to consider how some civil resistance transitions do succeed and really do produce democracy. I want to thank Jenna Spinelli, who gave me the idea for a final episode to recap my thoughts. She even volunteered to host this episode. You will probably recognize Jenna from the podcast Democracy Works, It is produced by the McCourtney Institute of Democracy out of Penn State. I want to take a moment share my appreciation for her assistance. I've reached out to her on more than one occasion for her input and advice, and she has always been generous in her time. This is my first first experience on the other side of the interview. I share some of the details about myself, some of my own thoughts on democracy, along with kind of my final ideas about these past three episodes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here is Jenna Spinelli.
1: Justin, welcome to your own podcast.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jenna. How are you doing? So,
1: um, <laughs> I- I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to to be here and have the chance to have this conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to your Resistance Revolution Democracy series, and I definitely want to kind of reflect on that and maybe think through it a little bit with you. Um, but before we get to that. Listeners, I think, know that your name is Justin Kempf. You you mention your children from time to time. I think we hear uh, one of your children at the beginning of the show now, but um, listeners might not know that much about you. And I think you might assume listening that you're a college professor or a PhD student, or you work at some think tank somewhere. But as I understand it, that's not quite the case. So why don't you just... Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to start the show.
0: Sure. Um, well, I, I do have a BA in Poli Sci, but like um, I've I've got a background in business at this point. I know a lot about marketing and sales, and have an MBA um, through the Kelly School of Business. I mentioned that when I talked to uh, when I talked to on Thompson a few episodes back, and the background that i've got is uh uh i've got a i've got a a really nice library card and uh was able to start um i i started with um shortly after trump was elected and i've, I've always read a lot but I, I started reading like a lot especially about democracy around the time a little bit after trump was elected and the big question that was on my mind was there was conversation in the media about how Trump was being undemocratic, but it seemed really difficult for me to wrap my head around how you could elect somebody through the democratic process that could undermine democracy itself. That didn't seem possible. Um, it it definitely came to me as a paradox, which is part of the reason why I have the name "Democracy Paradox." And I started reading, uh, picked up Fukuyama's book on political order. Uh, read a lot of other stuff, um, read a lot of journals. And uh, at this point, I read a journal article every day. I read about three books a week right now. I'm at about a three-book week uh, per week pace. And I, you know, prepare for these podcasts and and write my blog. And um, I, I think I'm starting to put some ideas together, but I still feel like I'm on a learning process.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, it's been great to kind of follow and like learn, learn along with you. So I, I'm curious, has going back into these, you know, these texts, these longer works, these journal articles, has that impacted the way that you're following the 2020 campaign here in, in the U.S. versus maybe how you followed things back in 2016, uh, you may be not yes. as glued to the you know day to day horse race of it all?
0: Yes. I've worked in politics before too. I've done some political fundraising and stuff uh, when I first got out of college. So I've always kind of paid attention to politics. But to be honest with you, during the Bush years and, and Obama years, it it was easy to take the idea of liberal democracy for granted. It was easy to believe that there were certain things that just wouldn't happen, weren't possible to happen. So I pay a lot of attention to the ideas that Donald Trump is putting out there. I pay a lot of attention to what Democrats are saying, Um, pay a lot of attention to what a lot of people, I, I believe very firmly that the maintenance of democracy, the protection of democracy really comes down to individual citizens. I think the politicians are oftentimes just a reflection of what people want. And so what people do, I think has an even bigger impact than what the politicians do. So when we talk about Donald Trump does this or Donald Trump does that, I think the supporters of him have a bigger, bigger role to play than he does in terms of shaping how the election goes and how democracy goes. And and the same is true with the left in terms of paying attention. And I, I, I really pay attention to that. Some days I, I maybe get a little bit more worried than other days, but, uh, You know, it definitely makes me think in terms of um, both my hopes and my fears. Paying
1: Mm -hmm. attention this Mm -hmm.
0: this round. So
1: yeah, and I mean you you talking about kind of the role that the the people play here. You know, I think in addition to just taking the the idea of, of liberal democracy for granted, we all sort of I think outsourced a lot of our role. I guess that maybe comes with that sort of taking for granted part of it. And I think that's, uh, you know, why, I mean, as as you well know, you could fill a small library with books about democracy that have been written since 2016. Um, I think I did. I read a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, yes, it's something, something something, of a cottage industry these days. Um, but I it's, think that, that there's,
0: there's a long history, though, of talking about the breakdown of democracy. I mean, that's not new. Like uh, in the 70s, a lot of people were writing about it. Uh, Samuel Huntington has a book um, about the crisis of democracy written back in 1975 that he wrote with a couple people. It's on my list. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I reviewed Breakdown of Democracy or of Democratic Regimes by uh, uh, Juan Linz uh, a while back. That was written back in the 70s. People have talked about democratic breakdown for a long time. Um, and kind of thought through that and and even kind of put it during the Nixon years, people were talking about mm-hmm. democracy breaking down. So uh, it goes in waves. So uh, Yeah, it, no,
1: totally. There's a there's yeah. a, a book out that I recently read called The Four Threats to Democracy that might be on your radar too. But Just it, it read it. About, oh, reviewing, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm reviewing that this weekend on the blog.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, what did you think?
0: Um, I thought it was good. I, okay, so... The most interesting part was the part where they go through the 1890s and they talk about um, the uh, divide with race. And, and I really, truly believe that you have to talk more about race when we talk about American history. Uh, the more that I read, the more I believe that. And so it's really interesting when they talk about the um, creation of Jim Crow through the 1890s and how that that was really a setback for democracy I thought that was really unique. I I read their foreign affairs article too, so it talked a little bit about that, so I had a preview. But what I thought was really interesting is they talk about polarization as a threat, which is what I have done in the past, but their book made me start to rethink that because polarization seems to occur to me after reading that book. Polarization seems to happen when somebody is trying to keeps somebody from the democratic process. Somebody's trying to exclude other people. That seems to be when polarization happens because when polarization gets diminished, it it seems to be when everybody agrees to exclude somebody and say, oh, well, that that group doesn't matter. We'll cut them out. And that's what happened in the end of the 1890s was everybody cut out African-Americans, especially in the South from participation. And that's really when the polarization that was so high that they write about Dissipated, but you see that happen again and again and again throughout history. And I was surprised that they didn't talk more about that how polarization is oftentimes not necessarily so much just a threat, but is almost a necessity for somebody because it means that somebody's defending somebody else, the inclusion of some groups. And um, anyway, that's probably a sneak peek to what I'm going to probably write about on Saturday. (laughs)
1: You clearly read widely, and there's any number of, of themes that you could tackle, but um, I was curious that you sort of put together this resistance, revolution, democracy as this three-episode arc. How did that come about? Where did where did the idea come from? Was it one part of it that came to you first, or did you really think of it as a whole from the, the very beginning?
0: Yeah, I stumbled on Erica Chenoweth's work in Journal of Democracy um, from this past issue. Um, I read it the day it came out, uh, the piece on, on nonviolent resistance. And from that moment, I started hitting up Erica Chenoweth to, to, for, for an interview on the podcast. And the reason why was because it, um, it really captured something that I was, didn't put together myself, but made a lot of sense. Because democratization, like working as a democracy is about, to me, is about a political process of inclusion. You're including more people into the process. And so it makes so much sense, the idea that, hey, if you're doing a violent resistance, it's going to be more difficult to include people again if you're fighting, like literally fighting them. Whereas if you're Using nonviolence, it seems like it's going to be easier to kind of repair relationships with people and try to create democracy in the end. And that just blew my mind, the whole idea about that. And I've I've thought even more so about the idea of the politics of violence that seems to come up a lot in a lot of different things and how non-democratic that really is, um, you know. And so – that piece really kind of caught my attention, and there's so much work on nonviolent resistance that's out there, and oftentimes we we overlook it because we think of these protests as just kind of emerging out of nowhere, and then and then a dictator topples. When in reality, the strongest protests are are what Erica Chenoweth describes as like campaigns that last a long time and build up to something, and oftentimes create parallel institutions, like what happened in South Africa, and. It's fascinating to kind of think about that in terms of, hey, how do we really create a democracy, especially when you don't have something there like, you know, and the idea that you would do it through nonviolence rather than rather than fighting the dictator is just really caught me as as both intuitive and and surprising all at the same time. So I was really excited to, to look deeper into this literature.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is a little counterintuitive to think, you know, you think of these dictators, literally, they're called strong men, right? So you need a strong, often conjuring images of, of violence to be able to to overthrow them. But as as Erica uh, points out, and, and I know you and I were, were talking um, offline earlier about uh, some work that I've read by Serja Popovich who read who led the Otpor movement in in Serbia in the early uh, late nineties, early two thousands. Um, they actually took it a step further and used something he calls laftivism, um, where they literally humiliated um, Milosevic out of out of power in in some respects. So um yeah, that that is fascinating. And I think that's also something too in the US context, like we really just don't think about it as often maybe i mean i know you you touched on the the civil rights movement and the the civil war but there's just not necessarily that that same it doesn't have the same prevalence here I suppose. And and so it just, um, you know, makes it all the more interesting, I think, to think about all the different ways that these things manifest themselves throughout the world. You know, each one is, is, is a little different, but there definitely are, you know, there's, there's a pattern there to be followed.
0: Yeah. And the civil war is interesting because it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. If you think about it long enough, where you had to have this violent war to overcome uh, the institution of slavery, but in the end, y- you didn't really produce democracy because it was it was really difficult to be able to reconcile the people of the South, um, the white Southerners, with the African American Southerners, and unfortunately, people didn't stand up for the African American Southerners and and ended up allowing a white supremacist state to a, to um you know be erected in the south mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating though to think of the fact that the thing that really turned the corner for democratization um it's uh it's like in Larry Diamond's book he he writes um his his most recent book he wins he talks about oh, yeah, how true. yeah in his class he asks his class uh when did the united states become a democracy and the You know, some people say the revolution, some people say this, you know, civil war. And he's usually waiting for somebody to say the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was the nonviolent transition that really brought about that. I don't know if you want to say the final step of democratization in the United States, but it it took us an enormous leap forward, if you will, Um, even farther than the than the 15th Amendment, if you think about it because the 15th amendment didn't really ensure the right to vote the way that um the way that African Americans seized that that right in the 1960s through the civil rights movement.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I, I I remember that line from from Diamond's book and yeah, it is. I've I've been in in political science classes where that's discussed and yeah, it is always kind of that light bulb moment that that goes off of people think about, yeah, when did the, the US really become a, a democracy fully. Um, there's also, I think, as, as part of this, you know, the the movements, these, these civil resistance movements, they're really good at being against something. But then when it comes to, you know, what do you actually stand for and how do you construct these new institutions? I think some of them also falter there. Uh, and uh-huh. that's, you know, one, one other, you know, sort of problematic area and this push for democratization. Was there, was there anything about that piece of things that that surprised you or that you kind of le- learned along the way through the course of these episodes?
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting the, the kind of tango, if you will, between George Lawson and Jonathan Pinckney, which by the way, it's really fascinating to talk to these writers. Because they all reference each other in each other's works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they all know each other personally. Um, so, I mean, George Lawson and, and these other people, they're really not as far apart in terms of the theory, but they emphasize different aspects of it. And so George Lawson's very focused on revolutions and he's focused on them historically. And he talks exactly like you did about the difficulty to be able to bring about, um, to sustain democracy, because... You you have that big moment, you topple the dictator, and then what do you actually stand for at the end? And Jonathan Pinckney talks a little bit about how mobilization and and interestingly enough, it's almost the opposite of what George Lawson implies. George Lawson says you got to stand for something. Jonathan Pinckney says, Yeah, but it can't be too extreme, or else you have high maximalism, and that eventually becomes Undemocratic, because you start using violence to try to impose your your will upon the rest of the population, so it, there's a there's a fine line between saying, "Hey, stand for something, but don't stand for too much um, and and but that 's really the challenge behind democracy is that it's it's not easy it 's very difficult to get people to work together and and that's the reason why it's such a civic responsibility that is challenging not just around the world but even here it's 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 difficult to be able to work with people but that's you know it's it's significantly better than the alternative obviously
1: sure yeah the old churchill quote right yeah um so is and was it pinkney too that that said that democracy is or you know liberal democracy is gives us or is supposed to give us the mechanism to keep some of the, the resistance or the kind of revolutionary attitudes in check because it provides a series of, of processes and norms and institutions and other outlets to work through some of these issues and, and conflicts. Was, was that him? Or am I getting him confused with one of the other episodes?
0: Um, he may have said that. I think that's pretty common throughout the democracy mm-hmm. literature. The, the challenge there, Jenna, is getting to the point that you have the norms and you have the institutions established. Mm-hmm. And that's really what they're trying to figure out. And Erica Chenoweth has an interesting finding. She talks about parallel institutions, and I mentioned that earlier. And I don't think I delved deep enough into that mm-hmm. in the series. But uh, South Africa is a perfect example. I mentioned that before, too, where... If you have a civil resistance campaign that lasts long enough and you're able to develop those institutions that fulfill some of those needs of the state but remain detached from it so that this, the civil resistance campaign is is learning how to work together throughout society, um, that has a major impact on democratization because you're able to take those institutions and apply them when you take power, and so Jonathan Pinckney mentioned that civil resistance campaigns sometimes if it lasts longer, if it doesn't just win overnight, sometimes they're more successful because they're able to establish i think because they're able to establish some of those uh, parallel institutions that you can then transfer in ways to uh to the new regime
1: right um so are there other people doing work in this space that you're also interested in talking to or or do you see the the potential for this arc to continue on further?
0: I can see myself picking this up as as time goes on. I read a lot of different journal articles preparing for this. Um there was uh, there's a lot of literature that talks about different aspects of this beyond just Erica Chenowith. Um there were, uh, here, there's, there's an article called fresh carnations or all thorn, no rose about how, uh, nonviolent campaigns, um, are able to produce democratization, um, by a couple of writers, uh, in a lot of stuff in the journal of peace research that I read, uh, Judith Stoddard's written some pieces. Um, she wrote a piece that was talking about how nonviolent resistance campaigns, um, you actually have higher life expectancy at the end of them than a violent resistance campaign. Um, there's a lot of interesting research out there on it. Uh, I could see myself coming back. Uh, the uh, I, like you said though, I like to I like to go in a lot of different directions. The next week uh, or this coming week, I've got uh, Don Kettle on the show, and we're going to talk about federalism. So uh, that's that's probably a hot spot for uh, for Democracy Works.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've, we talk about federalism, uh, quite a bit. Every other episode. Uh yeah, pretty much uh, yeah. Um, I'm just <laughs> picking you on you. <laughs> a, no, I, I mean when you have a, a two-state politics scholars on the show, kind of happens that way sometimes. <laughs> but um, I'm really interested. I've been trying to get them to do for for a while now an episode that looks at marijuana legalization through kind of Ooh. a federalist lens. I think there's a, a laboratories of democracy angle there. I know it's it's on the ballot in New Jersey this fall. where are we don't Pennsylvania's not where I am. It's not a, a ballot measure state, but um our our governor has been pushing the, the legislature to get it through. I think a lot of states are thinking about it now as a way to, you know, replenish those financial reserves post COVID or as COVID continues. But
0: Don talks so, a little I know, bit stay tuned for that maybe. Donald Kettle talks a little bit about it in his book, but, um, he, uh, the subtitle for it is why federalism doesn't work. So that, that, that would be really controversial for, uh, for some of you. Yeah,
1: no, I, I, you know, maybe, (laughs) uh, maybe we'll have to have him on. He can argue with, with Michael and Chris about that. Um, but, uh, so, you know, for listeners, out there um who i guess i you know one thing that i even just talking to you now justin it seems like you have this almost like rain man like quality to remember these facts and the and all these authors and articles and and books and all these things what's your your secret how do you read how do you take notes how do you organize how do you keep all of these different concepts straight as you're preparing for your interviews
0: um Two things. One is I cheat. I keep notes in front of me. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a rainman quality. I just I work really hard to keep uh to write down notes before I, I, I do any of the podcasts. So I um I have a lot of notes that I, I have to go through. I don't I don't even bring up half the stuff I have written down usually, but I, I write down stuff and it helps me know about the book better. So um mm-hmm. that's one thing. Reading a lot is actually makes it so you remember more. I find the more you read, it's easier to keep things straight. Like you, uh, you start to see the conversations. It's uh, it's interesting when you're reading one book and then it quotes a, a, another book, but you're reading that book too, and and you might have even read that passage recently. That's always fascinating. Um, it's uh, it's easier to kind of put things together. I, I keep I keep things organized so I can kind of. And and try to keep things um, – I do a couple different techniques to be able to reference things and notice where I read something. I, I keep track of all the articles I read and try to keep all the books in the same place, you know, so I can kind of reference them based on topics as stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, again, you know, you just – the more that you write and the more you think – and the podcast has helped me with the blog – because I feel like I, I have to prepare and think through, okay, what did they really mean about this before I go and talk to somebody? Because I, I'm always terrified that I'm talking to somebody who spent so much more time than me on a subject. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I, I, I seem like I'm able to converse with them, even though I'm not going to know as much as them. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I usually go through, I'll even read, like do a second look through a book usually before I do the podcast. And I do that for the blog now too. Like I'll go through and I kind of do a second look before I, I write. So then that way I've got a bird's eye view of, of what I'm talking about rather than just kind of doing stuff off the cuff. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I probably work harder than, uh, than I probably should. <laughs>
1: We'll have to ask your wife and your kids about that sometime. We'll get them on the next, episode, <laughs> the next behind the scenes episode of the Democracy Paradox. I, I, I try um, to. No, uh,
0: yeah, I think of every episode for the fact that they let me get away with it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I found that reading all these books about democracy has changed my like my reading habits. I don't know if it's necessarily for the the better per se but i really (laughs) trying to make an effort to read some fiction or you'll hear me say on the show sometime if if anybody has fiction recommendations please send them my way uh i feel like i seem need like a mental cleanse from from time to time
0: um and so i Um, i I reviewed eb white and the kids uh the kids were like really you're doing eb white because i make them read charlotte's (laughs) web and i was like yeah but it's about democracy and they're like again
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, what uh, what do you have a, a, a particular t- time of day that you like to to get your your reading? And I mean, three books a week is a lot, especially for somebody who has a day job.
0: Yeah, I mean, I get through an audio book too, like at least one uh, of them is an audio, um, so I cheat there. And um, I read in the morning, and then I read at lunch, and then I read at night. Yeah. So I, I get like, and with working from home, obviously, it makes it easier too. Because mm-hmm. you can do a lot of audio while you're working from home too. Mm. Um, when mm-hmm. I go for uh, for a run in the morning, I I, I listen to audiobooks. Mm. and so I kind of I kind of cheat there too, and get a little bit extra in, and then. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it probably comes out to like like four hours, maybe five hours a day reading, probably. Mm-hmm. So
1: geez, you should convince somebody to give you a PhD sometime for all these all these all this this reading you're doing. Um
0: Yeah, I I I don't know if I'm on that level. I'm not writing the (laughs) dissertation or doing the classwork. So yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Um so coming back to it's it's been great to to kind of get to know you a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Um coming back to the the resistance revolution, democracy. Mm Series. Any kind of final thoughts on that or, or reflections that that you've had now that you've gone through all three episodes?
0: Yeah, I, I, I would probably break down that I think that there's three big findings I kind of walked away with. Um, one was that civil resistance is more effective than armed resistance. That really caught me. Um, the second was that civil resistance leads to democratization much more often than armed resistance and then the third was that civil resistance does not guarantee democratization. You know, um, there's no Mm -hmm. guarantee. It really comes down to how you go about it, which is what the Pinkney episode was about. How you go about it is more important than just doing it. You know, you have to do the follow through. It's like, um, like my son does baseball and, uh, the follow through is just as important as the swing. You know, as making the contact. You know, if you don't follow through past the contact, you're just not going to have. It's it's the ball's not going to go out there. You know, you might make contact, mm. but that doesn't. It's not going to be a good hit. So you've got to have right. follow through. There's still yeah, no yeah, guarantee you, know, you I... get a hit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I just wonder, you know, as our culture changes with, with social media and where I feel like much more of an instant gratification society, like how well that follow through is going to hold out? Because as, as you said before, this is hard work. It takes a long time. And I just, in my most cynical moments, I find myself wondering if, if we still have it in us to have that follow through.
0: Well, Sherry Berman has a really fascinating book called Dictatorship and Democracy in Europe. She wrote it last year. I would put that on my top five for 2019. And in that book, she goes through the history of democratization in Europe. And the reason why she wrote the book, she says, and she writes um, is that everybody complains about these failed democratization efforts like the Arab Spring, um, Eastern, you know, different parts of, of you know Eastern Europe, even now, uh, Africa, different places, you have these failed democratizations. And Sherry Berman's like the history of democracy in the West is a series of failed democratization efforts. And after each one, they they learn something and they get a little closer. And and it takes like 150 years or so, or it over a hundred years, just in France alone, to get to a point of true democratization. So, if if you're talking about you know instant gratification, I mean it it's a process, and and sometimes you might think that you're losing, but you're actually making progress and succeeding, and you just don't realize it yet.
1: Yeah, and I, you know that's something else I, I was thinking about too as I listened to these episodes. I mean, do people? who are part of civil resistance or, or part of a revolution. I mean, do they, can you, can you really assess what's happening in real time or do you really only see kind of the, the gravity or that something even is, is a revolution, for example, can you only see that through a kind of hindsight view, or are you able to, do you know that's happening when you're kind of in the thick of it?
0: That sounds like a really good podcast episode to get a, somebody on. Um, uh, I, I will say this, Jenna. Um, like my my really early background was in third party politics, and so I, I felt the the kind of beginnings. I never felt the success portion, but you don't really pay attention to what kind of progress that you're making when that's happening. Um, you just kind of it's just all in the moment, is my experience. Now, I'd assume that if you're in a moment like Poland solidarity moment movement, which lasted really long time. People always forget that. Um, I think we talked about that on the Pinckney episode and it, it takes like 10 years on the solidarity and everybody thought it had completely collapsed early on and it kept going, but then you get to 1989 and things happen so fast. I would assume that when you're going through that process, it feels exhilarating and completely different than anything I can imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, having as, you know, like, like we were talking about with the the four threats episode, there's always that extra context that comes from history. Right. But I, but I think you're also right that, yeah, there are some things that just feel like kind of watershed moments and you just know that we're sort of in it right now. Um, well, Great. Well, um, Justin, I know you have a lot of books to go read. I feel like I'm cutting into your evening (laughs) reading time here as we talk. Um, was there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to add?
0: Um, you know, I've got, we got really exciting stuff happening in October. It's, it's going to feel like it's hidden a lot of different topics, but I think that it's going to really hit some, um, unexpected avenues for instance i've the week after we do federalism we're going to talk about uh direct democracy as an antidote to populism which is a very different direction than i've ever considered but i've got an author to discuss that
1: who's your guest for that one
0: um it is um i'm going to pronounce the name wrong here it's uh matsu is, um oh. is what I want to say, uh, Matsusaka. And then the week after that, I have uh, Paul Robinson to talk about Russian conservatism, mm-hmm. which I think is really fascinating in light of everything that happens with Russia in the 2016 election. As we get close to the 2020 election, and then uh, I've got a episode to talk about uh, corporate irresponsibility with uh, Barbara Freeze. I've got a lot of mm-hmm. got got a jam packed October that goes through a bunch of different topics, but I think it's, it's uh so rather than going through a single arc, it's going to kind of hit some different avenues, but it's going to mm-hmm. hit them in really different directions than what people would normally approach them from. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. about that. Cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I look forward to, to hearing them. And um, I, I know I've, I've said this to you offline, but I'll, I'll say it here, I think what you're doing is a, is a true, Service and I, I have, you know, I make my podcast as part of my job. I have a, oodles and oodles and oodles of respect for somebody who just does it uh, because they want to and because they have the the passion for it. And I, I think your your passion for it really comes through uh, in the show. And I, I hope the the rest of your your listeners would would agree. So uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to sit on the other side of <laughs> the microphone, and uh, it was great talking with you.
0: All right. Thanks, Jenna. Look forward to listening to some of the Democracy Works going forward. Sounds good. Thanks. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Jenna Spinelli of the Democracy Works podcast for hosting this episode. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.